And I'd ask that you would turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John this morning as we kick off a brand new series that we've entitled Hit Reset, Seeing Our Dead Ends as Divine Opportunities. Now, let's be honest. These last days haven't been easy. If we're really honest with ourselves, we recognize we have hit a lot of dead ends recently. Things like disappointments have gone crazy in our lives. The things we were looking for, the things we were looking forward to, they've all been set aside because of this virus and the ripple effect that has transpired as a result. And your teaching team, your campus pastors, wanted to bless you and give you hope amidst some of these hopeless days. And we thought no better place to go than to the Gospels where Jesus is there and we see Jesus taking seemingly dead ends in people's lives and turning them into divine opportunities. And how he did it was by performing miracles. There are seven miracles that are listed in John's Gospel. They're not all that Jesus did, but these are some of the great ones. And with them and through them, we see that Jesus can, in fact, turn our dead ends into divine opportunities. So I want to remind you, no matter how difficult life may be right now, no matter how hard things are, or even maybe how they might get, you and I have hope as followers of Christ because we have the answer. We have the antidote. And that answer and antidote is Jesus Christ. And if we will put our faith and our hope and our trust in him and we'll focus on him and not our circumstances, we might be able to see miracles, not only in our lives, but in the lives of those around us. So over the next two months, what we're going to do is we're going to learn how Jesus changes things, how he makes things better. We're going to learn how Jesus is God's answer to our disappointment, to our doubts, to our despair, to our darkness, and yes, even to our death. And we're going to do it by looking at each one of these miracles and applying it not only to the lives of those that were first impacted by it, but our own lives as well. But as soon as you start talking about miracles, all kinds of alarms begin to go off in people's heads. You see, we need to recognize there are many perspectives to the subject or theme of miracles, there's a lot of ideas and thoughts about miracles, whether they're valid or not, whether for today or not. And so what I want to do in the first part of this message, even before we get to our text this morning, is recognize maybe what you might think about miracles and what God's Word says we should believe about them. The first thing that we do is we many times turn the common into the miraculous, we do this and, and we say this when a baby is born. I, I saw a miracle take place. We, we talk about a miracle happening at the hands of a surgeon where we say, listen, uh, that surgeon performed a miracle. My sports fans out there, we do this all the time when we see a team come back in some what we say a miraculous way. There's probably no better 
point of this than in the 1980 Olympics when the USA, a underdog, faced the more superior hockey team from the USSR. And it was in the last moments of that gold medal game when the U.S. was about to win that Al Michaels, the uh, reporter or sportscaster on that call, said, do you believe in miracles? So five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Unbelievable. It was then termed forevermore the miracle on ice. But let's be honest. Whether it's the birth of a baby, or the work of a surgeon, or a great sports comeback, all of those are common. They're not miracles. The second way that we uh, perceive miracles or think about miracles is we uh, take uh, something and we conjure up something out of nothing. We do this when we see a cloud in the sky and it looks like Jesus. And we say, oh, the Lord, he miraculously spoke to me. And then there's crazy ones where someone has seen the face of Jesus in a burnt piece of toast or in a pad of butter. Yeah, crazy stuff. But one happened in 2005, really close to where we're at. In the city of Chicago, on the Kennedy Expressway, a salt water stain had made what people believed was a miraculous sign. You see, for those that looked really, really hard and closed one eye and and bounced on one foot, when they looked at that water stain, they saw the Virgin Mary. People began to flock to what would be called Our Lady of the Underpass. And there was vigils and and, and there was a sacred shrine that was built. Listen, we can make miracles out of nothing. Another perspective that is had with regards to miracles is that we confine miracles to a certain place or time. Now, this is where many Christians and Bible-believing Christians find themselves. They look to the Old and New Testament, and they say, yeah, God was in the miracle business back then, but at some point after the time of the apostles, God put up his miracle business for retirement. No longer to do them. Or maybe what we say is God will do those miracles in in some far-flung place of the world for a missionary, but he won't do those miracles for me. But the Bible is clear that our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the God who performed miracles in biblical times is the same God that I believe with all my heart is doing biblical miracles today. And so we've got to be careful not to put God in a box and say, God, you can't work that way as you did before, because in doing so, we confine our God to something in the past. Another thing that we do is we become cynical of miracles, and the reason why is there's a lot of abuses out there. Let's be honest, we hear the word miracle or, 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 or a person doing miracles or the miraculous, and right away we say, no, there's no way that would happen. And the reason why is we conjure up in our thinking the snake oil slimy salesman of a preacher who's slapping the foreheads of one person and knocking down the other and yelling and pontificating that they're healed and, and they're forever changed. 
only to know that it's a bunch of smoke in mirrors. And so what we say is any miracle, whether it's by God or, or anything else, it's no good. We become cynical. The Bible makes it clear that we should believe in miracles, but we should trust in Jesus. And that's the best perspective that we can have with regards to this subject matter and theme of the miraculous. We need to claim miracles for what they are. They are miracles, and they're happening today. But we run the risk by claiming miracles that we begin to worship the miracle instead of the one who performs it. You see, miracles have been defined as any beneficial event that is physically impossible or impossible to confirm by nature. Wayne Grudem, a theology professor, put it this way. He says, a miracle is a less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. So why do we make much of miracles? Because we'll make even more of the one who performs them. Miracles are an opportunity for God to reveal his glory in a special way. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we should be excited and we should anticipate those moments when they come. And so we see miracles in Jesus' life and ministry. And John records these. And the reason why he records them is so that we will claim miracles for what they are, and we will give glory to the one who performs them. In fact, in John 20, at the end of his gospel, he says, Jesus performed many other signs and miracles in our presence. But they're not recorded here. We only have the seven that are recorded in the gospel. They're not the only ones he did. In fact, what John says is if we wrote down all of the miraculous things that Jesus did, there's not enough books in all of the world to write the history of them. But these have been written, John says, that you might believe. Believe what? In Jesus, the one who is the source of all the miraculous. Now that brings us to John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, we are told by John himself, this is where Jesus' miracles begin. So if you ever hear uh, on the Discovery Channel or the History Channel that Jesus as a little boy was making birds out of mud pies or, or striking down children so he could resurrect them, those come from places outside of the Scripture. And John is really, really clear. In John chapter 2, this is the first miracle that Jesus performed. And you would have thought it would have been in the front of kings and rulers but Jesus would perform a miracle in a country town where a wedding took place. And this is how it went. Two days later, there was a wedding in the town of Cana in Galilee.
Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine had given out, Jesus' mother said to him, They are out of wine. Madam, what do you have to do with this? My time has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you. The Jews have rules about ritual washing, and for this purpose, six stone water jars were there, each one large enough to hold between 20 and 30 gallons. Fill these jars with water. They filled them to the brim. Now draw some water out and take it to the man in charge of the feast. servants who had drawn out the water knew. So he called the bridegroom. Everyone else serves the best wine first. And after the guests have drunk a lot, he serves the ordinary wine. But you have kept the best wine until now. Jesus performed this first miracle in Cana in Galilee. There he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, Jesus and his mother, brothers and disciples, went to Capernaum and stayed there a few days. What an amazing scene. A wedding. And it's what we learn from this wedding that will help us to see the glory and power of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it will give us hope amidst all of our disappointment and our struggle today. So let's remember a certain wedding party. Now to do so, I'm going to just kind of knock down what's going on in the text. We are told, first of all, that, that what transpires is a wedding. And the wedding, where does it happen? The place is Cana. Now, Cana is a small community, kind of similar to our, uh, where our Indian Creek campus is, uh, the town of Shabana. It's not much different than the town I come from, the town of Hinkley. It's not well known. If you, if you blink, you, you've gone right through it. 
Cana was a city that was about eight miles from Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. So it's no wonder that Jesus would know somebody in this small town. And, and he has come for a wedding. Now right away we know what the purpose of this party is. It's a wedding. And now get out of your minds that the American tradition of weddings, that they happen on Saturday and they happen for a couple hours and then everybody goes home. Get out of your idea that the father of the bride is flipping the bill for this. You see, in Middle Eastern weddings, it's all different. Weddings go on not for hours, but days. Most likely, this wedding started on a Wednesday to finish up on Friday night, a three-day affair. Now, how it would begin would that the groom... After engaging himself or betrothing himself to his bride, he would go back and begin the process of building their life together. That would be building a home and finalizing his career and building up enough money to support and care for his new bride. It would also involve the groom flipping the bill and preparing all of the provisions that are needed for the wedding festivity that was about to come. And it was when he was finished with all of that that he would go and get his bride with an entourage of his people. Now, right away, if you're a Bible student, there should be little things that are going off that are saying, wait a minute, I've heard this before. Yes, you have. In John chapter 14, Jesus, who is the bridegroom, speaks to his disciples, his Christ followers, the, the bride. And Jesus says, hey, I'm going to leave. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I've gone to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back. And the Bible says that he's not just going to come by himself, but he's going to come with an entourage of angels to take us, the bride, to be with him forever. Jesus is mimicking this marriage analogy to what he will do with us, the church, at his second coming. And so the groom, after he's prepared, he goes and gets the bride. And the bride comes with her family and her friends and her community. And they gather together for this three-day feast of festivities and, and, and revelry and dancing and gifts and joy. But we're told in the text a problem comes. What's the problem? It's Mary who tells us the problem, and she tells us there's no wine. Now, that would, wouldn't be a problem if it was just the groom and the bride. But notice all the people that are a part of this party. We've got the groom. We've got the bride. We've got their families. We've got Mary, and we don't know what her connection is, but seemingly she's pretty connected, and many Bible scholars believe that she is a close friend or that this may be even one of her relatives, maybe even another son of hers and Joseph's. Now we hear of nothing of Joseph. And Bible scholars believe Joseph has died at this point. Joseph being a much older man than Mary when they themselves got married. And we know Jesus is about 30 years of age. He's a grown man and he's about to embark on his three years of earthly ministry. Now he's brought disciples with him and there's five or six of the disciples that he's recently called to follow them and they've been invited. Now, we also recognize in this party where this problem comes up, we've got a caterer. He's the head food master. We've got the waiters or the wait staff. And amidst this party, 
when everything is just supposed to go perfect. Isn't that how we plan our weddings? Things to go just perfect here. As a preacher and a caterer, let me just tell any future groom or future bride right now, no wedding goes off just right. There are always problems with a wedding. I've seen guys pass out. I myself literally left the stage after performing a wedding to head to the hospital because I had gotten sick. As a caterer, we've run out of food. All manner of things have taken place. All kinds of situations come. So so some practical advice is when you plan your wedding, plan it with an open hand because what can go wrong, my friends, will go wrong. And the problem is, Mary tells us, they've run out of wine. Now, right away, you would say, well, go get some. Go to the local Aldi or the Jewel and, 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 and get some wine. Fix the problem. As a caterer, one of the things I tell my employees is when you head out for an event, always know where you can go if an emergency comes up. Well, in first century Palestine, there were no Binny's Beverage Depots. There was no ability to go get new wine. Now let's also be honest that this problem created a much bigger problem. To run out of provision during this celebration would say that you as a groom are ill-prepared not only to take care of a party, but also to take care of your bride. And so what it would create is shame and scorn from your community. But even more important than that, can you believe that it was a place where lawsuits could happen? This groom was running the risk, not only that his future in-laws might sue him, but can I go even farther, that the reason why he would sue him is a breaking of the marital contract, and how you would break that would be this would be grounds for divorce. This is a big deal. And so Mary goes, and she goes to the one she knows who would have the answer. And I wonder if she, and I'm adding this, but if she had a coyness to her, hey, Jesus, you and I both know who you are. Listen, Jesus, I'm on to this secret. I've been in it and been a part of it since the beginning. I know how you were born. I know all that took place while you were born. I, I, I understood how, how Elizabeth responded when I was pregnant. I know how the wise men and the shepherds responded the day you were born. I've watched you and I've seen you. You're unlike any child. I know you to be the Son of God. And I know since you're the Son of God, you can address this problem. And Jesus says, hey, woman, which just as you know is a respectful term, but one that separates him from his mom a little bit. He says, woman, you should know I'm about my father's business. My hour has not yet come. And it's pointing to a systematic unveiling of what Christ was going to do according to the will of the Father. Now, this isn't the only time that Jesus has shared this and Mary has heard it. Mary, at one point, had lost Jesus after a trip to Jerusalem. And for a matter of time, they didn't know where he was at. And then they found him, and Jesus says, you, you should have known where I was at. I was in my father's house doing my father's business. And so Jesus then goes, and Mary tells the waiters, do what he says. And Jesus has them fill up these jars. And without any sleight of hand, He changes water into wine, and he saves 
the day. And this is the first of many miracles, both recorded and unrecorded, that would point the world to him in all his glory. Now, once we've remembered this amazing event, what are we to do with it? The answer is, is there are principles within this story that we need to apply to our own lives. And we need to rehearse these things over and over and over again. We need to remember these because we live in a world of disappointment. I'm talking to you right now, and I know where you're sitting today. You are in a place of disappointment, and who can blame you? We have been thrown in our lives, and in this moment of time, the biggest of all curveballs, it would seem. And there's been a lot of things that have disappointed us. It seems every day there's another disappointment. Now, now, now right away, before I get to these principles, can I, can I just tell you that what Jesus does isn't out of necessity? The groom isn't disabled and needing to be made whole. The groom isn't dying of some debilitating disease and needing to be raised up. Let's be honest, the groom isn't dead needing to be brought back to life. We've got this disappointment, this embarrassment, and Jesus uses his miraculous power to perform a miracle. And I want to stop you, and I want to remind you that what that means is that Jesus uniquely cares about the smaller things in our life. They're big to us. But let's be honest, running out of wine is not a celestial nightmare. But in this, we see that Jesus uniquely cares about what concerns us. That groom was embarrassed. That groom was ashamed. That groom wanted to dig a hole and, and, and put himself in it, never to be seen again. But Jesus had love and compassion for that groom. And I want you to know today that that same compassion that Jesus had for that groom, he has for you and he has for me. One of the disciples that were there was named Peter. He would write a couple letters of Scripture of his own. And in the first letter he writes to the church, he says, listen church, throw all of your anxieties, throw all of your disappointments, throw all of your concerns, everything that bothers you, throw it on to Jesus. And he says this, because he cares for you. You're disappointed that there's no graduation? throw it to Jesus. You're concerned or disappointed about what this does to you financially? Throw it to Jesus. You're concerned about what it's going to mean for your family and you're anxious about that? Give it to Jesus. And don't let the devil say that God is so big he doesn't care. God cared enough about a guy running out of wine at a party that he cares about the daily events of our lives. And he wants to be our answer. So let's look very quickly at seven principles, and I'll close with these, that I think will show you that 
Jesus is God's answer to the problems and disappointment we're facing today. And they come right out of the text. And so notice with me, first of all, when trouble comes, find Jesus first. They run out of wine. Listen, I know very intimately what it is like behind closed doors when the caterer runs out of something. And I can tell you it's not a pretty sight. And so no doubt there's all kinds of mayhem and bedlam going on behind the doors. We're out of wine. Well, who forgot to bring it? Who didn't load it in the van? Who didn't do this or that? I'm sure there was a lot of finger pointing in that. And then who's going to tell the customer? And this is where we see Mary gets uh, word of this. And it seems like she quietly goes over to Jesus and she talks to Jesus about it. Can I tell you, my friends, in that moment, we need to be like Mary. You see, when trouble comes, when disappointment comes, we go home, we yell at everybody that's closest to us like our family, we kick the dog, we bellyache and moan and groan about how how bad our lives are. We go on social media and we blame everybody else. But, But what we are called to do as Christ followers is to find Jesus. Now, why would we go looking for Jesus and why did Mary do it? Mary did it because she knew Jesus was bigger than the problem. Can I tell you something? The reason why you and I don't go to Jesus first is because we think our problems are bigger than Jesus. And so we've got to recognize Jesus is our answer. And so instead of trying to fix it ourselves and trying to go to our credit cards or our bank account or other people or ourselves, we need to go to Jesus. He's got the answer. When trouble comes, find Jesus first. Notice second. Though life seems chaotic, God is in control. Now, there's this interlude or interchange, I I, I mean, uh, with Mary and Jesus. And Jesus says kind of some cryptic thing, my hour has not yet come. This is a theme that Jesus would articulate over and over and over again in the Gospel of John. And what it's saying is, is that Jesus was on God's timetable. And that Jesus was not going to fall to the whims or fancy of anyone, including his mother. And this is important, and listen, why? Because chaos is ensuing around Jesus. And Jesus says, listen, I'm not worried. Nowhere do we see Jesus put his hands on his head and go, oh my, what are we going to do? He doesn't point the finger and say, who messed up? Listen to me right now. This situation we're in has not caught Jesus by surprise. It's a part of Jesus' and God's plan, and nothing can thwart that plan for that groom or for you and I. And so we can take heart. We've got a God who is in control, and amidst all the yelling and screaming and all of the mayhem, we've got Jesus who's firmly established in the control that he knows everything is under his feet. And we can take heart in that. Now notice, this then leads to something else. If Jesus is the answer, and Jesus has control of the situation, then surely when Jesus speaks, we need to do what he says. So notice, Mary has full confidence. Whatever Jesus says, do it, guys. And she tells the caterers, follow his lead. Now she didn't know what it was going to mean, 
Now this following what Jesus said is more difficult than you would think. Let's go back to the text. The text tells us that they're out of wine. And Jesus then moves over, probably goes behind the curtain where the caterers are at, and there is a bunch of bedlam going on back there. And Jesus says, hey guys, this is what I want you to do. See these six jars over here? The Bible says each of them filling up somewhere to 20 to 30 gallons. I want you to fill them up with water. Put yourself in the caterer's boots or shoes. You want us to do what? You want us to... Wait a minute. This guy's crazy. We've got a wine shortage, and he's having us fill potted plants. This is, this is foolish. It's futile. Can I tell you, Christ follower, very clearly today that sometimes when God commands us to do something, it will seem foolish to us, and it will seem utterly futile to follow his lead. But faith tells us that though I don't see it with my own eyes, I am going to believe and I am going to obey. And I am surely glad, and this is why the caterers are better than anyone else. This is why you want to invite the caterers to every function that you have. Why? Because they're faith-filled people. The caterers do what he says. They fill it up. It would have taken time to fill up 180 gallons of water. But they do it. And then he says, okay, now dip into the water and take it to the head caterer himself. And that's what they do. And it is there that we learn a miracle has taken place. Those caterers were a part of something awesome, something miraculous, listen to me, because they obeyed. Brothers and sisters, how much are we missing from the miraculous, from God moving in big ways in our lives because we choose to do it our own way instead of doing what Jesus says? The next principle. When you run out, Jesus wants to overwhelm you. He will overwhelm you. This is where the caterer in me, it, it just really loves this. Okay, so we are told by John, there's no more wine. Zilch, nada, nothing. And Jesus tells these guys to fill up six jars, each of them averaging from 20 to 30 gallons. So uh, let's just average it out to 25 gallons. Okay, right away, the portion control in me as a caterer has got me thinking, okay, each gallon serves 16 eight-ounce cups. All right. What Jesus has just done is he has changed 2,400 eight-ounce glasses of water into wine. Now, let's just stop and recognize that's quite a party, amen? That's crazy. That's a lot of wine. Can I just stop and tell you there is no way that midway through the wedding party that they're going to drink 2,400 eight-ounce glasses of wine. So what are we being taught here? There was something left over. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus has performed a miracle and he's left something over. You see, when Jesus performs a miracle, he doesn't just give you just enough, he gives you way more. 
in the 23rd Psalm, we are told that our cup overflows because of the mercies and grace of our Heavenly Father. And so what Jesus is telling us is that when Jesus does something big in our lives, he's going to leave us a carryout bag. He's going to leave us something extra. Now, now here's the reason why, and don't miss this. What Jesus did by turning that much water into wine is he gave the bride and the groom the ability to bless others. And so they gave out more and more wine and said, hey, take some of this awesome wine, which, listen, it was the best wine that was ever made, the most expensive, the most exquisite. It is the best of the best. No one had ever made it better because the creator of grapes created the wine that was out of this world. And they got to share it. Let me tell you something. When God blesses you, and he blesses us each and every day, are you sharing it with others, or are you getting drunk on it by yourself? God wants to overwhelm us so we might be a blessing to others. There's a couple more, and I'll go quickly. We need to stay focused on Jesus, and when we do, our faith will grow. Now we go to the disciples, these guys that had just started following Jesus. And they had been watching Jesus the whole time. That was all that they knew at the party. And so they're watching Jesus, and they knew, wait a minute, water went in there, but wine came out. And the text tells us in verse 11 that they believed. Nobody else believed. Why? Because, listen, this is so important. Everybody was focused in on the party. The disciples were focused in on Jesus. You see, when our eyes are on our problems or the circumstances of our life and not on Jesus, all we'll know is that they brought out some new wine and it tasted really good. But when our eyes are on Jesus, we will see miracle upon miracle take place and our faith will grow. So let me ask you this morning, is your attention on the circumstances of COVID Or are they looking to Jesus and saying, I'm waiting to see how my Savior is going to take the dead end of this time and turn it into a divine opportunity. And when it does, we will believe in greater and deeper ways. Two more. When bad things happen, remember the best is yet to come. When the head caterer drinks the wine, the text tells us that he acknowledges to the groom. Now notice the groom has gone from the worst provider to the greatest of all time. And the reason why is what the head caterer says. He has saved the best for last. Now that wouldn't have happened unless the wine ran out. Now I'm talking to my congregation across its five campuses, and I know that there is something that is true for all of us. And the truth is, is this is a hard time. These times aren't easy. But can I remind you that it is in the seasons where I run out that God shows me the best is yet to come? Some of the worst seasons of my life have been the beginning of the greatest seasons of my life. And what turned out to be a real bad moment for that groom turned out to be probably the highlight of his life. He would tell his grandchildren about that day even though we don't know if he even knew what transpired. But all he knew 
And something incredible took place. Listen, follower of Christ. No matter how hard this world is, no matter how difficult our struggles may be, Jesus has promised the best is yet to come. Through the words of the prophet, God said to his people, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for his people. And that is our hope and that is our confidence and that is what makes moments like we're living right now light and momentary trials. Because the best is coming. Now, how do we tie this all up? What do we need to do to claim this as our own. Notice one of the most important things that we would run right by, and it's so important that we stop and hear it. Listen, this miracle and the joy that comes from it hinges on four words in verse 2. Jesus was also invited. Now we move past those words, but let's just stop and recognize the best thing that that groom ever did in his life was not picking out his bride was not building the wonderful house that he had built, was not picking the caterer that he picked, it wasn't picking the band that was going to play, it wasn't the ring that he bought the bride. The best decision that that groom ever made was inviting Jesus to his wedding. And there's a principle there for us. We, too, need to invite Jesus into all moments of our life. We need to invite him in, not just in the good times, but in the bad times. But quite frankly, when I invite Jesus is when I'm really in trouble. This groom didn't know he needed Jesus at the time, but he invited him in. And so, my friends, as you watch this, do you want an answer to your disappointment? Do you want hope amidst hopeless times? then invite Jesus into your life. Invite him into every moment. Invite him in, and when you do, the Bible says that he will enter in and he will have fellowship and commune with you. If you've never done that, today is the day. Because Jesus wants to come in. There's a number on our screen that will get you in touch with people that will help you through that decision and through that process of what it means to invite Jesus into your life. But this word isn't just for those who are maybe considering Jesus for the first time, but it's true for all of us that we need to invite Jesus into our life. We need to invite Jesus into our disappointment. And, and here's the reason why. Because as we're going to learn in this series, Jesus is our answer. And in John chapter 2, at a wedding in a small town called Cana, we learned a truth that we need today, and that is Jesus is the answer to our disappointment.